This is the Drummers Only Podcast, brought to you by the UK's leading drum store. Well, okay, good every evening, everyone, afternoon, Drummers Only Podcast, episode number 71. And we have a man here who's nothing short of legendary. It's the incredible Mr. Steve Smith. Steve, welcome. Good morning. Well, thank you, Chris. It's good to be here. It's a pleasure. Um, for those of you that are new to drumming, perhaps, because it's the only way you're not going to really know who Steve is, um, I'll give him a... I'm going to introduce a man that doesn't need an introduction, but um, Steve is one of the legends of the drumming industry. He started his career with Jean-Luc Ponty and has played... Uh, he was the... the drummer for Journey for a long, long time. Uh, he has his own jazz legacy project. He played with Hiromi, the Vital Tectones, and Vital Information, which is his own band that he's led now for 40 years. Congratulations on 40 years of running your own band. Yeah, thank you. Vital Information have just released a new record called Time Flies that Steve was kind enough to send to me ahead of today, and it's nothing short of sensational. Um, thank you for that. You're welcome. Shall we get into just talking about the record? Yeah, the well, to I guess to start with, it was it was in 1983. While I was still in Journey during the you know original incarnation of, let's say, the most potent version of Journey, I I, I was in the band from 1978 until 1985 okay and during that time we recorded essentially most of the hit songs that that people know right from journey we recorded a lot of other songs too you know <laughs> and, and quite quite a lot a large body of work and uh, in those years we played all kinds of music uh, whereas in later years, bands like Journey tend to focus on the hits mm. because that's what, what people come to hear. But during that time, uh, we were doing a tour, playing the music from the album we had just made, then uh, making a new album, coming off the road for like three months, make a new album and go back on tour and then play most of that music with a few tunes from the older record. So it was a, it was quite a living and breathing creative energy uh, that was going on mm -hmm. with that group. In 1983, while still a member of Journey, I got a record deal on Columbia Records because that was the label that Journey was signed to. Okay. And um, and basically, it was because Journey was very successful. Columbia Records wanted to keep all the members in the band happy. I wanted to do my own album. Sure. So I went and talked to the folks at, at the label. I had the Journey manager uh, work out a deal for me. And that's how the recording career of Vital Information started. Right. And And, but the actual concept and the group started a, really a lot a long time before that because um, that was 83 so 10 years before that 
uh, actually. Like when I was in high school, I graduated high school in 1972. And then in June and then in September 72, went to Berkeley. Mm -hmm. And through that time, the early 70s, I was playing a lot with local uh, local jazz musicians, and I was very close friends with Tim Landers, great bass player, and David Wilczewski, a, a saxophone player. And we played gigs around Boston in big bands. We played small groups. We had our own band. And then when when I ended up touring with Jean-Luc Ponty and Tim Landers ended up touring with Billy Cobham and Al Demiola, David Wilczewski was working with Freddie Hubbard, we would get together once a year and play our own music. And we'd have Dean Brown play with us or Daryl Sturmer or um, Barry Finnerty. And Mike Stern is, is a person that we went to college with and who would play with us. So I actually had a group, had a bunch of music already. So by 83, when I got that record deal and made the very first Vital Information album, that's the music of this group that I had been playing with in a way since high school. Wow. And and then we made immediately a second record. The first record is simply called Vital Information. The second record's called Orion. And then uh, a couple of years later, then I left Journey actually and started playing with the group Steps Ahead, which was a very fortuitous situation for me in a way to go right from the top of the rock world to the top of the jazz world playing with Michael Brecker. Mike Stern, Mike Maneri, and Daryl Jones. That, you know, that was a stroke of luck, being at the right place at the right time, but having the goods to bring it right, to totally. the gig, you yeah. know. And and um, and just like a quick story of how how I ended up getting that gig is I was doing a drum clinic with Peter Erskine and Lenny White, oh, wow. and we were talking backstage. And Peter, who I had known since my high school years, um, he and I are the same age, but but he was playing with Stan Kenton back then. And I used to go see him with Stan Kenton and absolutely fell in love with his drumming and then went to a Stan Kenton workshop uh, in 1973 that he was teaching at. So our our history goes back quite a ways. And he told me he had left steps ahead. Lenny White said, oh, yeah, I know. They called me for the gig, but I'm too busy to do it. And I said, well, I need a gig, you know. And Lenny White said, I'll call Mike Brecker and Mike Maneri tomorrow and recommend you, which he did do. And then um, they called me the next day and asked me to come to New York and join the band, start Amazing. rehearsing. No, even, not even an audition, just... No audition. They were auditioning people at that time, and they hadn't found anyone they liked. But for for some reason, they they thought that I would work out, and it and it did. And in fact, when I went once, I became a charter member. Let's say of Steps Ahead, I have played with them on and off mm -hmm. ever since. And in fact, the last gig I played with them was in November of uh 2019 right and but it but i you know but sometimes i don't tour with them and they'll yeah. get another drummer sometimes sure. i will tour with them you know sometimes peter does it you know it's, <laughs> it's an interesting it's just it's kind of a that has a flow and it and who's ever available and whoever mike Maneri decides to call right 
Did you find it easy to switch gears from doing stadium rock to like much more delicate jazz, jazz fusion where you needed a different touch, all that kind of thing? I, d- I definitely change gears. No, but did you find it easy to do that? I, I find it pretty easy to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Because um, it's not everybody can do that, man. Not everybody can go from playing right. stadium rock to playing you know, in seven and nine and, and or, or with touch and support and acoustic bass or, you know, these things supporting acoustic instruments like saxophones and things. Exactly. And, you know, and I guess to, and we got off a little off the subject of, you know, where I was going with yeah. all that is that, you know, by that time, then I was playing with Steps Ahead. Then I made two more albums with Vital Information for Columbia the band started changing. Some of the guys in the band got busy doing other things, and so I changed some band members. And and in the end, I ended up making four albums for Columbia, which have recently been re-released called The Complete Columbia Recordings on Wounded Bird. So it's a four-CD set. Oh, okay. And then after Columbia, then I, you know, like like all artists do, I found another label and got <laughs> signed, signed to Intuition records in cologne germany and made a bunch of records for them and then eventually got signed to bfm jazz and made records for them and so at this point 17 albums later you know the latest album essentially is my own you know i'm the label right so that's the new the new (laughs) paradigm (laughs) completely independent pretty much completely independent i did i do have a partnership with wounded bird and they're putting out the cd right Oh, but CD only. So I'm putting, I'm, I'm owning it and putting out the music for streaming and I'm going to have some LPs made, you know, that's in the process. And so that'll be on my drum legacy records label. Oh, great. So you, you, um, they just distribute it. Uh, the CDs. I'm going to just distribute that myself. Oh, wow. Okay. Wow. That's a big undertaking. Basically just means I'm going to be selling them at the gig right. <laughs> and yeah. selling them on my website, vitalinformation.com. Yeah. The, and the reason that I went in partnership with Wounded Bird for the CD is I could do that with CDs, but uh, Wounded Bird actually has distribution through, you know, Alliance, of, of right. a major distributor here in the U.S. And and it just helped me get more CDs out there to the general public sure. that may not necessarily know to come to my website to, to buy a CD or yeah. may not come to a gig to buy one at the gig. Right. But to get, let's get back to your question about making adjustments right. okay. <laughs> with these different gigs. So, when I was playing as a young drummer growing up and playing in Boston and playing in the practice rooms of the Berklee College of Music and then, you know, playing gigs around Boston, I I was used to playing with acoustic instruments, you know, because most of the most of the gigs I played would have an acoustic piano, saxophone player, trumpet player, sometimes electric bass, sometimes acoustic bass. Um, but I, you know, I had a, a pretty good touch and I could adjust my level to blend with those musicians. But once I got playing with Jean-Luc Ponty, that was a very different situation because it was very electric. Jean-Luc was plugged in and he played loud. The guitar players <laughs> played loud, the bass player. And everyone was, you know, electric. And, and, it, and it required me to, like... Uh, developed this like fusion style 
it's like a really interesting thing to look back at that time. So it was it was late 1976 when I got that gig, but and fusion had been around really. If you can, you think Mahavishnu Orchestra was 71 to 73. Weather Report started in 71. Chick Corea returned to Forever with Lenny White, and mm. and then eventually Al Dimiola was started in 73. I saw and I saw all those bands. I saw Tony Williams, the new Tony Williams Lifetime with Alan Holdsworth. And Billy Cobham's first band uh, that he toured with, with Mike and Randy Brecker, you know, the Crosswinds band. Even though I was hearing that and experiencing that music and hearing, being going into clubs and hearing that, in a way, me as a student and the culture hadn't absorbed that way of playing yet. It was so new. Okay. That I that like me and most of my contemporaries we're, we're still playing in a way coming out of Elvin Jones from the '60s or Tony Williams from the '60s, right? Like with the little drum set with sure. the 18-inch bass drum, and um, and this more like you know muscular fusion approach was exciting, and but um, it was new. It was so new in a way that uh, a lot of drummers hadn't caught up to it yet. And I was one of them. Now, I did pl- was able to play R&B and rock because I did a lot of gigs around Boston like that. I was able to play straight ahead. I could read music well. I could improvise. So when I did audition for Jean-Luc Ponty, I passed the audition, mm. mainly because, you know, I could play in odd times. He had me play in, odd t- in seven and five. He had me read music that was pretty hard, and I could read it, and I passed the audition but once I got on tour, that was like, that's when the learning started. And I had to play with this more muscular fusion approach. In 76, I had a small Gretsch drum set. And by January 77, Ponty asked me to buy a double bass kit that looked like a Cobham kit. So he wanted, he said, I want you to have a kit like Billy Cobham. So that's when I bought my first Sonar drum set, two 24-inch bass drums, three rack toms, you know, a 16, 18-inch floor tom. And that's when I, you know, really started, like, developing this kind of jazz rock fusion sound. Mm -hmm. And it was fun, and I really enjoyed it, but it was a very different approach. So then I'm developing this sort of ability to play strong and get a very big sound playing in theaters you know we were playing in theaters anywhere from 1500 to 2500 seats wow and um and then eventually um ponty made a change and and let me go a couple of the let a couple of the guitar players go and i was looking for work so i moved to la and auditioned for ronnie montrose and got a gig with ronnie montrose playing instrumental music not it wasn't his rock thing like with sammy hagar Mm -hmm. it was it was like a jeff beck ish thing and we ended up opening for journey for a three months tour so i'm i was playing in the same way that i was playing with jean luc with ronnie montrose very similar and uh the guys in journey liked what they heard and then at the end of that tour which was in 1978 asked me to join the band. So that sounded really interesting. I, I, September 78, I moved to the San Francisco Bay Area and started playing with Journey. And then in a way, further refining this big sound yeah. with a big double bass kit. And I felt like I had to play really loud all the time and play really hard. And and it was like a, in a you know, kind of a, a young person's way of 
approaching a gig like that you know it just seemed like yeah i gotta play loud and and be massive and 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 the albums ended up i mean they stand the test of time and they sound good to me but and i can see the videos but i was playing pretty hard pretty loud then when i got to steps ahead in 1986 that's when i started to have trouble right because because the wide range of dynamics that that group played with it was still when it got when they were rocking like that incarnation of steps ahead was pretty strong with daryl jones on bass and mike stern and mike uh, brecker playing the iwi right and they they wanted me to have like a drum set with triggers Oh, wow. Like if you like if you saw the vid, there's a very good video of live in Tokyo, 1986, and I have like a big refrigerator behind me, <laughs> full of like electronics, and my toms are triggering Simmons pads and wow. Simmons, and you know, and that was the direction of that group. And but we also played really quiet and and then really fast jazz, fast ride cymbals, and and so I was I was having some trouble negotiating that i had changed my grip in a way where i wasn't holding the sticks at a sensible balance point the way i used to when i was a kid and i'd move the left hand back like this and the right hand back while it was with journey to play louder which all led me to study with freddie gruber yeah right and that's that's in 1990 i ended up you know through peter erskine and through ian wallace they introduced me to Freddie Gruber, and that's when my change, my technique went through a, a pretty big change, and I was able to then get a much better balance point, have a lot better technique, and then my range of dynamics changed radically, and and my drum sound got even bigger than it was when I was playing loud. Right. So I was able to get a big sound without hitting the drums hard and without hurting myself. So, so that was a pretty, pretty big change. And like Freddie would have me play from essentially just no stroke at all. Just learn how to drop the stick and get oh, a wow. sound out of the instrument without any force yeah. at all. And so that having that as like, you know, triple pianissimo to you know triple forte range with a lot of control is the secret in a way to being super comfortable in all aspects now so now i can play at birdland you know with a with a saxophone player and an acoustic bass like trio mm -hmm. sax bass and drums mm -hmm. play at an appropriate level where i don't drown anyone out there's no mics at all in the room let's say mm -hmm. you know we can play like that and it sounds great out front and then a week later you know be on tour playing at madison square garden with journey yeah. and and the secret there is i'm not trying to play loud sure i'm just trying to get a big sound yeah i'm working on getting a big sound and the key to the all of it is to have the drum set be well balanced internally mm -hmm that I play the bass drum as the foundation in a rock setting as the level that I want the bass drum to be at, then I adjust the snare and the cymbals and the toms to that. Mm. And then the rest of it, the sound man takes care of as far as amplification, because there's only so loud a drum set's going to go. And when you're in a room, 
that big, a big room, yeah. you, you'll never fill it up yeah. with sound, no matter how hard you play the drums. So conceptually is another thing that I'm, I know how to play in a rock situation. I know how to play in a jazz situation. So I'm not dealing with a conceptual issue. Mm-hmm. I'm just, and just making sure um, dynamically, my inner dynamics are balanced well, and that my overall dynamic is appropriate for the room that I'm playing in. Sure. There's a really great video on your YouTube channel with vital information playing I Love You and Bratislava. Oh, right. Wait from, with Jeff Andrews. Right? Yeah, and Bratislava. So if anybody wants to see Steve when he's gone through that transition because the seat height has come up, your yeah. your, your posture's totally different, but it's still absolutely killing. There's a really great drum solo up the top of the tune and the drum sound is enormous and it's in an open right. air theater. It's really something else. So that that, yeah, that to me is a, that's a prime example of all that work because there's all this control, but all this sound and power and dynamics and the te- right. and uh, like tempo. Some of the some of the the singles and the doubles, the, the tempo that's getting pulled out, it's it's, it's pretty bright, man. <laughs> yeah, thank you. And there's and there's one of the reasons I posted that is, you know, Jeff Andrews is no longer with us, and he was one of the great bass players that yeah. I got to play with. His solo on that is absolutely yeah. astounding. Yeah. It's a really incredible bass solo. And and I'm playing with brushes behind that bass yeah. solo. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, so that's another aspect that happened with the increased technique. I was able to develop a, a nice brush technique as well. One of the things that struck me about the new album is that all of that is there. I, I mean, some of the tempos you're playing at and dude, it's like you're pushing seventy years old, and, and, <laughs> True. and you're yeah. you're still playing like you're twenty five. Okay, it, it's astonishing to listen to because it, it's it's that you're there's nowhere you're not hiding. It's just a trio record. There's just and it's all out there. It's absolutely amazing. So that to me is a benefit of studying that way, right? Yeah, I mean it keeps it at my age now, and I'm. Uh, you know, 68 in August, I'll be 69. And the year is 2023 <laughs> for future reference. Um, it takes me a little more maintenance than it used to to keep up the chops. You know, they do, they diminish faster when I take time off. Sure. It's something I'm noticing. Okay. Now in the in the aging process. So, you know, so I still put in time and I have to, you know, warm up and make sure that I'm plenty warmed up, which I've always done. But I do notice I'm a a little more uh, susceptible to losing some of that, like faster tempos if I don't keep them up. Mm. You know, I have like one of the things I do, let's say, you know, if I'm off the road for a month or so, one one of the things I, I like to do is, you know, I play along with recordings. Mm-hmm. And one of the, and I would recommend for drummers, especially, you know, keeping the ride cymbal tempo up right. to speed, which is, which actually is about the hardest thing. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, re- really, yeah, and yeah, I, yeah. Is, but yeah. I, to get to the, my point is that I, I play to Giant Steps. Sure. I play to the John Coltrane song, Giant Steps, the original recording uh, with um, 
Art Taylor on drums. Yeah. So the tempo is very steady and it's and it's fast. It's not crazy fast, but it's fast. And it's a and it's a good tempo to keep your ride cymbal mm-hmm. chops up with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's kind of I've got tons of questions that are, that have kind of come off that, but the record itself, I, I really, I really love it. It's it's really great. Great. Well, thank the, you. The um for for those of you who 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 don't know what it is, it's the new Vital Information record. It's called Time Flies, but it's a double disc. There's the Time Flies record, and then there's the second CD called A Prayer for the Generations, and they're they're wildly different records. The first one is a trio-based record with some guests, Mike Manieri on vibes and George Garzon on the tenor saxophone, but the second CD is a quartet-based record, and it's predominantly all improvised music. There's two tunes right. on it that were pre-written. There's the, the one-up, one-down tune, which is the opener, and the fourth of the... the time, uh, Prayer for the Generations record is a Joe Zavinal tune, but outside of that, it's all this beautiful improvised music, and it's like two really contrasting records. It's tremendous, but there's so many things that really struck me about it. Still playing with fire, man. Like just so much fire in the music. Garzone and you, like it's like you're boxing. You're playing each other. You know. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like you're, you're not. Yeah. You're not shrinking away from any challenge. If he throws down, you're right behind him all the time. Right, the duet. There's a a drum saxophone duet on. What is this thing called love? And you can just hear each other. You're just pushing each other all the time. Yep. How is that to keep up? Like, the improvising chops. Is that hard to keep maintenance on? Um, you know that's a good question, and. My, the majority of my practice is based around improv, improvisation. Okay. So I, I'll, I work on technique and I work on vocabulary with the, with the end result being that I can improvise. Sure. And, and, and that improvising is takes the form of both time playing and in soloing. Oh, okay, cool. You know, so they're and they're 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 very connected in a lot of ways because in in the kind of music that I'm recording with vital information and playing live with vital information, even the time playing is largely improvised. Okay. You know, it's not like uh, a pop song or going on tour with journey where where the the song is composed and recorded and the drum part is is pretty much fixed yeah you know and i'm learning how to play i got to relearn oh separate ways it has this beat here and then it goes to the chorus here and uh when i play with vital information there is there are some tunes where the beat is important and part of the composition sure but then let's say the solo section comes and then i just use that beat as a reference and then we're improvising so we're listening and interacting so that in that way i'm improvising time and then there'll be a section generally where i'll solo in in whether it's in an odd time whether it's in four four but it's always at a particular tempo so you know so i develop ideas that that i want to use in these songs okay 
so so one thing about having you know having a band and having or or being a sideman and being hired by someone and i know that i'm going to be playing uh these spe- specific songs i do what's called dedicate it's like i think it's called like a kind of a focus dedicated practice to developing like on what is this thing called love i play a solo in seven Mm -hmm. like we have a vamp in seven so i know like i'm gonna re i'm gonna i'm gonna practice uh for my like next tour that we're doing in a few weeks i'll i'll spend some time practicing in seven and working out some ideas Mm -hmm. to keep it fresh you know some working out some new ideas and and get more and more and more comfortable playing that solo in seven mm-hmm. or or we do a tune that I recorded actually uh, on an album before called eight plus five okay. that's in 13. <laughs> and so we play that every night. So, you know, I'll work on, on, on those ideas and get more and more comfortable playing in 13. And then there's straight ahead, like, like you mentioned Tempest Fugit, you know, mm-hmm. where I'm playing, we're playing the form <laughs> of the song, but we're trading, uh, eights and then trading fours and sometimes we trade twos so i you know i work on that so i you know have a focused practice on tunes that i know i'm going to be playing and tunes that i know i'm going to be improvising on so i i like having that idea of of you know developing more and more vocabulary to be able to improvise with yeah the other thing that one of the one of the other things that struck I'm not surprised by this, and but it struck me was that the time is so consistent from everyone, because obviously yeah. you guys are like at the top of the tree, so obviously it's so consistent. But the key for me is you're improvising through the time that's still so consistent, because that's really challenging. At this point, it, it's it's not. It just comes. It comes pretty naturally now. Amazing. Yeah, and it's, I mean, of course, these days, myself and other musicians are well trained by playing with click tracks and so often and practicing with clicks that in, in, in this way, there's the benefit of really being knowledgeable and comfortable with knowing what it feels like for every note to get its full value and to not hurry through things and, and play in a relaxed way. Uh, but yeah, as you can hear on a lot of those songs, they you know the time is oh, it's, it's impeccable, very very even, yeah, it's, <laughs> and it, relaxed, yeah, very. Re- it extends further because there's live there's live footage of you guys playing the trio playing, and it's all there yeah. too. It's 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 like, there, yeah, yeah it's, it is. It's it's maybe it's one of the best jazz albums I've heard in a long time. Actually, I I, I really really loved it. Um, well, I'm so I'm so pleased to hear that. Thank yeah, it's, you. It's really worth checking out, and I I'll share. I'll put a link in the description of the podcast so that people can check it out. You know, because I really think they should. Um, what was the writing process like for you guys? Let's see. Actually, uh, we so Yannick Guizdala, mm-hmm. who's who's the bass player, originally from London, now living in L.A. Uh, played with Vital Information a little bit in in 2020. when baron brown uh got sick and couldn't Mm. make some gigs and then uh and manuel valera who's the keyboard player originally from cuba now living in new york he played some gigs with us as well because 
my keyboard player got sick. So I was, you know, dealing with band members that were having physical problems. And this is right before COVID. Mm. So this was like, we played in February and March of 2020. And then, um, and then by the time uh, Manuel and I went to Australia to play a week at a jazz club in early March, we played it as a trio because my guitar player got sick and couldn't make it. And and that's when I could see like, you know, this really works as a trio because mm, sure. Manuel was able to uh, cover the melodies and the chords and the, and the forms and it sounded very good as a trio. So that's when I decided let's go with a trio. Uh, during that time, uh, Manuel suggested playing certain tunes like Self Portrait, mm. which is a tune written by Mike Maneri that I had played with Steps Ahead. So we started playing that in Australia and that sounded great. So we decided let's record, you know, that, that'll be something we'll record. Mm -hmm. Then, we got together in New York and played some gigs at Birdland. And uh, Emmanuel and I had played separately from Vital Information. We did a, a week at Birdland doing a Bud Powell tribute. And that's when we played Tempest Fugit uh, with Lonnie Plaxico playing upright bass. And we played uh, um, Un Poco Loco. And out of that, we decided that we love playing those tunes. And Manuel came up with some very unique arrangements, mm. especially Un Poco Loco, that then we tried with Vital Information that sounded great. So that's, you know, where that music came from. He arranged, you know, he really came up with the majority of the arrangements and the compositions. And he came up with... Uh, Ugly Beauty, mm -hmm. an arrangement in five with for Ugly Beauty. Um, the the two two of us, Manuel and I, came up with the tune called Choreography in Six, mm -hmm. and and using a writing technique that I've used with Vital Information a lot is I I come up with like a whole drum track, mm. uh, ideas that I have. And then I, I sent it to him and he played around with it and came up with ideas on top of that. Then we got together at a rehearsal studio in New York and refined it. Right. And came up with even more parts. And so that's a co-composition, which is a very interesting composition. Yeah, it's great. It's got a lot of facets to it. Uh, emergence, that was, you know, Manuel came up with that and just in answer to my idea of, you know, let's, I want to do something kind of Tony Williams-ish like he played on the emergency right. record. Okay. And he goes, okay, I got an idea. And that's how the idea, <laughs> let's call it emergence, which is kind of nice because it's the first tune on the record and it's the emergence of this brand new trio. Sure. And, but, you know, I'm definitely referencing what I heard Tony Williams play, not so much on Emergency, but more on the Believe It album, you know, more. Yeah. And then that I, when I saw him play live, you know, he was playing some of the ideas that I play on that. So, you know, Man Manuel really came up with a lot of the music. And then we, we got together and rehearsed and we played some gigs. And then, and I really loved this uh, tune that Yannick wrote. Um, Erdnas, mm -hmm. and he recorded that on one of his solo records, and uh, so we played that at live on the gigs, and 
and I thought it sounded very nice. And then we recorded that as well. And and one of the things I did on that song and some of the others is I've been using a gong in my setup, as you can see. <laughs> and so and I and I play it like over my right shoulder, uh, like a ride, like a big ride symbol, which, you know, took a while to figure out how to get a real clean, clear sound out of it. And so on that tune, not that I play it through the whole song, but on parts of the song, I use that as a ride. It's just got such a big open sound to it. I dare you one night, one night, just play it for the whole tune. Don't tell them, <laughs> don't tell them you're going to do it. Just play it for the whole tune. Just play it. Yeah. Right. Because <laughs> um, the second, the second disc is all collective improv, right? Yeah, the first tune, like you mentioned, is a Coltrane tune called One Down, One Up. And uh, that George recommended, let's just play that tune. I've been working on it. We all knew it, so we just counted it off and played okay. it. And and then after that, it, we just said, let's improvise. Let's just come up with with things. And so was there a reason for Was it just a kind of let's just do this? We We had time in the day. Amazing. So that was cut in a day? Yeah, like in a in one afternoon. Wow. Yeah, just in a couple of hours. That's amazing. Yeah, it 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 happened like very quickly. Like uh, just to go over that process, we I I really wanted George to play on the tune Inception. Mm-hmm. So George and I had played together quite a bit when I was a Berkeley student in the early seventies, and he had and still has a group called the Fringe. It's sax, bass, and drums. Just okay. like a, you know, very freeform trio. And I, for one year, I played drums in that, in that group. Um, and we played in other, you know, we played weddings and you know commercial gigs together as well. But I stayed in touch with him, you know, a little bit over the years, and you know, not a lot, but, um, but he's such a great sax player and he's he's like a sax guru that's taught many of the young sax players that are on the scene today like donnie mccaslin and I, you know as for one I, I i can remember that he said he studied with george but there's lots of them mm. and um but i hadn't really heard him until peter erskine's last record like three nights in la right Peter has a great record. It's a triple disc, and George is playing. And I was like, "Oh man, I hadn't heard him play for so long. He sounds so good." And then it ended up we recorded on a record together. Like we were in a band at in Boston called Beard Hersey and the Year of the Ear. Very kind of very avant garde kind of group. And Beard Hersey just is re- recording a new album, and he had me play on five tracks, and he had George play on some of it. And so you know, so our has crossed again and then i invited him to play inception which is an up-tempo mccoy tyner tune mm-hmm. and he he really tore it up and then i i wanted a tune that was a short improvised piece that i could use either before or after tempest fugit right and so i said let's take half the tempo of tempest fugit and make you know choose the key that it would work either before or after and then I, I'll count it off. And I, I, we have a video of that. Yeah, I, I I it. Say, yeah and, and, and that in two minutes and 40 seconds, we improvised this great little piece of music. Yeah. 
So we had, you know, we knew we had something going on there. And then the other thing was George said, let's play a duet. So we had, we had already recorded what is this thing called love, but, uh, okay. Right. We played two, George and I then just played two choruses of the form of the tune. And then we edited that on to the beginning of the song. I couldn't work out why he didn't have a blow on it. Yeah, I know. Too bad. I know, but it was already recorded and we really liked the take, but you know, it was a way for us to get a drum and sax duet and then, and then put it on that tune. And at that point we, it was like that all happened really fast. And then it was like two o'clock in the afternoon and he had a flight at six. And so we had a few hours and we had no plan. So we said, well, let's just improvise. And so that's how we came up with that second record. And then, you know, so we did one down, one up. And then we we went from there. Then uh, Yannick, he led off the first improvisation with his pedal. Mm. Like he he has these uh, pedals that make sounds and then uh, with his and then they do loops. And he started off and he made, you know, some interesting sounds and created some loops. And then we just went from there and started jamming. Yeah. And then the and then a second piece, it was like we just pick a tempo and a key and go. Yeah. The the one that's in a way the most remarkable to me is the third piece because it starts off with an improvisation rubato with sax and keyboards. Uh-huh. Which sounds like a a piece of music that was written, but it's just spontaneous composition uh where Manuel and George are having this beautiful conversation and then eventually drums and bass join in and and we just went from there yeah we just went from there like i made some notes on the tunes yeah. and, and part three feels like the drums and the saxophone are talking to each other there's this groove that you set up and, it, and it, it's yeah. just this like conversation between the two of you Whilst the other guys just hold it all together, they hold it all down. Whilst you guys get it's just amazing, yeah, absolutely ridiculous. I, w- I mean, it wouldn't be out of place on ECM. It, it wouldn't be, except for the drums are too big. That's all right. Manu Cashi's got records on ECM. It's fine. You know, it's with fine. The dr- yeah, I guess so. With a big drum sound. Yeah, true. that's fine. But it, what I'm getting, it's got that cinematic quality. Right. We've talked a little bit about. Um, you know, you, your reinvention when you went from, from or before and after you studied with Freddie. And and to me, reinvention has been something you've done out throughout your career, like the conical things and all, right. you know, and you spent, you know, you've, you've got published works on, on the, like the standing on the shoulder of the giants DVD, where you're, you're, you're talking about assimilation and these kind of things. Yeah, one of it. One of the um the, the customers at shops here has a question he wanted answered, which was basically, what's next for you to to learn? Because you've learned these ridiculous things that have gone into your plane in an amazing way. So what's next for you? Well, I don't. I don't. I think. I don't think there's any anything that major next for me as much as maintenance. Right. You know, maintaining maintaining my abilities is is not that easy actually oh okay because of the aging process mm-hmm. and and i and there you know there for me to play what i'd like to play and want to play you know it does require 
a lot of chops and finesse mm-hmm. and touch and technique. And so to, to keep that maintained uh, takes time. Uh, I, you know, one of the things that I'm working on in coming back to the improvisation is just being a little more, even more and more fluid and loose with the improvisation and, and, you know, coming up with some new ideas Mm. and, and I am doing that and I'm coming up with some ideas that, that, that I feel really good about. Um, and and using and and another thing that's that's been fun for me and you'll notice in the videos that you'll see of of and i we have more videos coming from the recording because we didn't record everything that we played but we recorded a lot of what we played but and 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 luckily we recorded everything we did that afternoon with george Mm -hmm. so i will be having videos made of, of all of those tunes actually um, but I'm enjoy playing like a bigger drum set with, you know, three rack toms and three floor toms and the gong, you know, so I'm, I'm working on ideas that feel good with that. Not necessarily the two bass drums. I usually just, I take just one <laughs> bass drum on tour, but, um, you know, work, working on, on those ideas, uh, with the, with, and, and the other part of the bigger kit is three snares right okay yeah you know like uh you know having three snares because uh and it's not just for playing backbeats with with different sounds different parts of the tunes it's actually playing fills where the snare fill is does something similar to what a tom fill does sure has different pitches right you know so and that's been pretty interesting but on the other hand my cymbals are diminishing (laughs) You know, and if my cymbal setup has diminished, and so, and and that's really an extension of playing a lot of gigs in New York in clubs where I don't use any crash cymbals. Okay. So it's just going back to either two two rides or may or three rides, and if I need a crash, I just I crash on the ride. And so you'll hear like this entire the entire Time Flies album, you know, that and then the entire A Prayer for the Generation albums is just three ride symbols. Yeah. And I'll change those. I've occasionally changed which ride symbols I'm using, but no crash symbols and no splash symbols. And and I I like that sound. And it's it's actually it's in a way nicer for the other musicians. Mm-hmm. To, to not be subject to somebody crashing a cymbal <laughs> four feet away from their head as they play the sax or the bass right next to me. And, and, it, and it just, the other thing I noticed, and, and like now listen that I've said this, maybe listen again to the record and, you know, both, both the Time Flies and the other one, it keeps the m- music moving more fluidly without crashes than in some ways uh, are a, like a big period at the end of a sentence and with and so without that there's more there's a little more flow and so there may be a fill and a tension and then a release but that crash that it's a release it's also the beginning of just a time flow yeah. that continues on and and so you know so this this idea of the seamlessness mm. of my playing is is in a way what one of the things I'm looking at and, and playing with right. is having this flow 
uh, where it's, it's it's like it's just, it does feel new and different for me to not have the crash. Yeah, symbols. right. Totally, because there's no voice to fall back on if you don't have it. Like that symbol voice. If you don't, if you, if it's if it's not there, you can't rely on it. You know. Yeah. And I and I I have a I just I tend to think many people they they in general I hear crashes a, a lot of crashes that I'm not sure why they're there musically <laughs> you know it's like it's like to think of to really think about that and and let's go back to when uh, drummers like Elvin Jones or Philly Joe Jones or Art Blakey did only have two ride symbols. Or Tony Williams with with Miles, you know, and and so all of the cymbal playing was done on two cymbals, there and there were no crashes. And you know, if you looked at who had crashes in those days, it would have been the big band drummers. Mm-hmm. Like Buddy Rich had a couple of eighteen inch crashes, and 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 that made sense because when and when I play with a big band, I'll put up a couple crashes. Mm-hmm. Because there, there, I like that you know for brass punctuation yeah. or or you know the setups and the and the support with the big band. Yes, I'll use it, but but in these small group settings, even electric or acoustic, I don't use them any anymore. I don't find them necessary. They in fact get in the way. <laughs> Am I right <laughs> that t- that Tony played predominantly the one symbol? He had to, but he used the one on the right more than. Any of that, the, the one on the left throughout most of his career with Miles. You mean with you, you're talking about like his period with Miles yeah, Davis? Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. I mean, but that's that's typical of the time, right? It's typical of of, of jazz drumming in general. Like your ride cymbal is is your main voice. Mm-hmm. But he, he could have switched it, but he didn't. You know, he he kept it to be the same symbol yeah. a lot. You know, and yeah, there's so I think people forget. I mean, we sell this stuff. People forget that a symbol is an instrument. There is so yeah. there is so much you can get from one. You won't get everything, especially if you have to, if you know a lot of drummers now have to do a wide variety of gigs. They can't just do one thing anymore. So you're not going to have one symbol that will go and do a wedding gig to a, a funk thing to a you know, a, a bebop gig, you might need more than one symbol to do that, but there is a lot you can get from just one symbol. If you, and, and if you take the time to really get into the nuance of how mm. to play a ride symbol and, and get, um, get a lot, a lot of sounds from that ride symbol. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, but that, you know, that, that's not a lot of start when it comes to jazz drumming. But um, but it's somewhat of a lost art when it comes to a lot of rock drumming, mm. because uh, I'd say okay, so I'd, I would say like the the rock drummers of of the sixties, like Mitch Mitchell and Ginger Baker and John Bonham, you know, they came out of jazz and they came out of blues playing, mm. so they came out of in a way a jazz background. Mm-hmm. You can hear it in their playing, mm-hmm. and they they learned how to play the cymbal. Mm-hmm. You know, they you could tell they could they could they had a very nice approach and touch and played all the jazz rhythms on the cymbal. Mm-hmm. But in years after that, a lot of drummers 
never really spend time. They play a ride cymbal, but they're just playing eighth notes on it. And they're not keenly aware of like even where to get the best sound out of the cymbal. So in a, in a way, in order to really develop great ride cymbal uh, technique and ability, you do have to play some jazz. You know, you have to approach it, at least yeah. learn how to play the Spangalang beat. <laughs> And then, yeah. and then play it in a way that it's like you're really taking advantage of all that your symbol has to offer, sure. sound-wise, and, and learn where to play it uh, and what angle of the tip of the stick mm-hmm. is to the, to, the, to the symbol. You know, there's so many details yeah. that you can get into to get a good sound out of your symbol. And then that will lead you to know whether... Well, this symbol is not a really great rise symbol. It's just too washy, right? Or this one is too br- too like too pingy, yeah. too brittle, yeah. or something, you know. And it has to have has to have certain qualities to make it a good ride symbol for whatever the music that you're playing. Yeah, for sure. One thing that I've always wanted to ask is that, especially I had watched your standing on the shoulders of Giants DVD. I have that DVD and your performance from the Modern Drummer 06, where you you take uh, specific players and and you've learned their language, so you play three card Molly like Elvin, you know. You play Sister Cheryl and you sound like Tony. Uh, how how difficult is it to keep your own identity as a player when you're assimilating all this other knowledge? Well, I I don't I think I was on a quest <laughs> to expand my concept, right. And and I had listened uh, to all those drummers. I hadn't. I I had seen most of them play mm. live, you know. And um, wow. but it's one thing to see them play live, and then and to listen to those tunes. But it's it's yet another thing to actually play that music and you know and do my best to to play in that style absolutely it's you know and and i feel you know fortunate that i've had the ability to do that and in a way it it started with when i would do i would play with the buddy rich big band okay and we and we did we did more than like what people know like that um you know there's these concert videos where i'd play like two or three songs and then you know somebody else would play two or three songs well Actually, for a while, Dave Weckl and I actually went on tour with the Buddy Rich band in the in the Greyhound bus. Wow. And we played, you know, we played gigs and he'd play a set and I'd play a set. And um, and so in those at that time, you know, we were playing, you know, a lot of tunes and uh, really getting in into that music. So and not that I was trying to play it like Buddy Rich. N- no, but it, but it's a it was a fascinating experience of hearing the the songs on the record and then and then figuring out how to convincingly play the music so the band sounded good right and that's what i eventually came away with it's like it's it's not about trying to sound like buddy rich really it's it's how do i play to and so the band sounds great how do i play these arrangements and I learned a lot playing them because even uh, listening to Buddy's versions and then seeing the actual charts, 
I found that there were a lot of discrepancies between what was written and what was played and recorded on the album. And so sometimes figures that were written uh, into the chart, Buddy didn't play them the way they were written. So the whole band played them where he wanted them (laughs) played. The whole band moved. And, 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 you know, and so when, if you came into that situation only using the recording as a reference, you, you, you'd be off from the band. Yeah. So, you know, so I read music. So, you know, so some of those we adjusted back to what the original arranger wanted. Right. And, and so that was interesting. So I, I really got inside of like, how do I play these arrangements so the band sounds great? Mm-hmm. And so that then then it's like in a way I can relax from uh, trying to trying to be Buddy Rich because that's impossible. No, of course. Of you know, course. And so it's so it's just a matter of being a good big band drummer at that point. And so I it, it took that approach really playing like Sister Cheryl and and you know trying to play somewhat in the style of Tony mm-hmm. Williams, but also just playing that tune and and having that tune feel great and mm-hmm. and three card Molly mm-hmm. or. A two bass hit that Philly Joe oh, sure. Jones recorded with Miles Davis, you know, so it's, it's, it was challenging and it, and it was very educational to um, learn all of that music and learn what Art Blakey played on a night in Tunisia, for instance. Yeah. And, and, and a lot, and so what, one of the things I would do is I transcribed what Art Blakey played uh, on a drum solo at the beginning of Night in Tunisia. And he did such a beautiful drum solo that I just learned it verbatim. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that was one thing that I, in, I learned in the process of learning Indian music, like we, with Indian drumming, a lot of times you learn compositions verbatim, okay. like it's, they're, they're fixed compositions. And I hadn't done that with jazz, but since my mind was like already into this mode of, I can, you know, I do that with Indian music, yeah. I'm gonna, why don't I do that with jazz? So I, I transcribed the intro to one of the versions of Night in Tunisia that Art Blakey played, and I learned it note for note, like an Indian drum solo. Right. And 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 I actually did the same thing for a Joe Dukes tune called Soulful Drums. That's right. It was a yeah. very slow piece. And Joe Dukes did this incredible improvisation uh, that was so, it was like a beautiful composition with a ton of space in it. Mm-hmm. And again, I transcribed it and memorized it just because I thought it was so cool. And then that increases my vocabulary. And then we toured like that band toured. We went, we went all over the USA. We went to Europe. We went to Russia. You know, we did a lot of touring. So I got to play that music a lot. So I don't lose my identity in that. I expand my identity in the end. In the end, it expands my vocabulary. And, and that's what, that's what I was trying to get at. Cause that was the amazing thing. If you watch or you listen to like the Walt Whiteskopf tune you played in subordination. It's just, it doesn't sound like anybody except you. Yet you've digested all this other information that the, that you're then playing back. It's a really fascinating thing to me because you didn't lose it. And that that's what I'm trying to get at is like, how do you keep it? Even though yeah. you're learning to play all these things. And I guess it's no different from classical musicians learning to play classical music. But it's fascinating when the, you're improvising. You still sound like you, even though you're spending yeah. all this time assimilating all this information, you know? I think we can't help but sound like ourselves. Sure, sure. 
you know, it's, I think it's, it's such a natural thing that we are, you know, even if you try to sound like somebody else, you're not really going to sound like them. You are going to sound like yourself. I think that the way that I don't know if you agree with this or not, but drum sounds are becoming so much more homogenized now, especially outside the jazz music that people don't have a sound in the way that you do, the way that Dave Weckl does, the way that Vinny does, where you, you hear your snare drum and like, oh, that's Steve's playing. Like straight away, like the language, the okay. sound, do you know what I mean? But if you listen to popular music, I don't think I could pick a drummer out of lineup from popular music now. Yeah, I don't, I, that I don't know, you know, like in, well, be, be, in, when you say popular music, like pop tunes where, yeah. the, it, where the sounds can be, for a lot of times, just like computer sounds. Yeah, or, but like guys of the nineties, samples or something. Guys of the nineties all have a sound. Like, I was a big. I was born in the eighties, so nineties music was popular to me. I can hear yeah. Jimmy Chamberlain or Matt Cameron. I can hear these guys right away because they yeah. had a sound, you know. And and people were using real drum sounds. Sure, real drum sounds were being recorded, mm -hmm. and uh, maybe there's less of that now. Maybe it's a funny thing. Yeah, it's a funny thing. I don't know. Talking of drum sounds, how many? Forty-five years with Sonar. Yes, that's a that's a that's rare. It is. I know. That's really rare. What drew you to Sonar? Uh, well, I would say two two players. It was Bernard Purdy. Okay. Because Bernard Purdy was a Sonar drummer back when he was recording. If you listen to uh, um, rock steady. Okay. There's an Aretha Franklin song, Rock Steady. Okay. That's uh, really a amazingly great groove and the good drum sound. And it's and it's Bernard Purdy playing on a small sonar kit with an 18 inch bass drum, and uh, just the way he plays it and has it tuned. And I knew that that he was playing sonar. And then I saw him do a drum clinic in Boston. Mm -hmm when I was a student at Berkeley and, you know, he was, you know, he's a good salesman <laughs> <laughs> and he was just, you know, talking, uh, talking up those sonar drums and playing it, playing so groovy. And so I just, I filed it away. Wow. Like, you know, my next kid, I think I'll get a sonar kit. And then Jack DeJanette was playing sonar drums. And of course, one of my favorite drummers also, you know, and, and, and I was listening to him a lot in those years on those, on the ECM records and different albums that he had been recording. So when it came time to uh, buy that big double bass kit that Jean-Luc Ponty wanted me to buy, I decided I'm going to buy a sonar kit. Mm. So that got me started. And then, uh, and then eventually, and then I bought this kit, you know, this little, this little kit with the, oh, it's so nice, man. With the 18 inch bass drum. Oh, look at that. <laughs> Beautiful. And, uh, and that was used. I bought that used. Um, so it's, you know, it's a beautiful older kit. And, and then eventually I went to Germany uh, when Journey did a tour of Germany or Europe. We went to Germany and then I was able to go to the Sonar Factory and oh, meet wow. Horselink yeah. and wow. Overlink. No way. And that's, and that's when I was, I became an endorser, you know, at that point after I had bought a few kits and really 
um, just knew that I liked those drums a lot. And then I've stuck with them ever since. They say that once you arrive at Sonar, you, that's kind of you, right? You're, you're kind of not going anywhere else. Like Sonar <laughs> guys are Sonar guys for life. Not not always, but a lot of that yeah. is true. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. what kept you there? Just the sound? Yeah. The, I mean, I started to identify myself that that sound really feels like my sound. Mm -hmm. And because, you know, occasionally I'll, I'll do a gig and there'll be no sonar drums available. So I'll, I'll play some other kit. And I, you know, I never quite feel comfortable mm. sound wise, you know, so, so uh, I've just always enjoyed the sound and I've had good personal relations with, you know, all the various people that have come and gone through sonar mm -hmm. uh, though i did have carl heinz menzel was there about he started in 1977 and i did so we knew each other you know his whole career and he was there 40 years so i think you know he left about four or five years ago yeah. or or you know at the beginning middle of covid period he he retired That's right. finally because it'd been in the store He's been, yeah, to your place. Yeah, yeah. So when he, whenever, whenever he found himself in Glasgow, he would, he would come to the store to say hello. Yeah. So I, I had, you know, I had that relationship for the entire time, even when Horse Link sold the company to Honer. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, you know, Carl Hines was still there, and then there were other people. You know, like Thomas Barth was there for yeah. a very long time, yeah. and uh, and so, and then I know people from. The distributors from around the world too yeah you know from japan from australia yeah. canada and and all good people that i that i stay in touch with because i think that's also a, a part of how you know i've stayed for a long time is i do take the time to have good relationships with all the uh, people that work for sonar in the different countries mm -hmm. because when i tour with my band, I need drums, sure. whether it's in Canada or, you know, or going around China or, or wherever. And, and I'm pretty hands on with making sure that I'm going to have a good kit, uh, where I'm. And, and so I have a lot of interaction with those individuals. I don't just leave it up to Sonar <laughs> to set it up for me. I'll start with that. I'll start with, you know, like, you know, can you hook me up with the distributor in, you know, Italy, right. and then, and then I'll work directly with Sergio right. <laughs> in Italy to make sure I'm going to get all the drums that I need yeah. at, at every venue. And so that that's helped over the years to keep those personal relationships going. Does it um, matter what kit you get when you travel, as long as it's a sonar? Does it matter what the shell is? Does it matter? No, it doesn't. As long as, um, and what, the key is that I I bring heads with me right okay and and uh like for instance like when i tour india <laughs> like that that's a challenge right uh to you know but i am able to get uh sonar drums in italy i'm sorry in uh in india mm -hmm. and uh and but they might be the letter less expensive drums that are made in china sure you know, ship there. But as long as I bring a really n nice set of Remo heads and I put those heads on when I get there before the gig, 
the drums will sound great. Do you do bottom heads too? Uh, generally, no. Just, that's just, just too much. <laughs> yeah, too much work. Yeah. I'll do all the top heads, but then I have to take them off to go to the next gig. <laughs> so, so the key the key there is that I have a cymbal bag without a post. Yeah. So I have my cymbals, and then I have like a, a full set of heads. Right. Wow. That I take on tour with me. So, and and not all the time. I only have to do that when I go to these places where the you know where where like China yeah. or India and you know certain places where I'm I know I'm not going to get a drum kit made in Germany with Remo heads on. Sure. Yeah. But and then but then there's times where you know I'll get a I'll get a, a backline kit. And it will have a, be a drum set made in Germany with Remo heads, but they're beat to death. <laughs> and then I'll and then I'll have to put on the new heads yeah. to get a nice sound on, on that setup. Well, what's next for you? Well, and and, uh, and coming right up is an East Coast tour, right? With Vital Information, and so we're doing a couple couple weeks around the East Coast, playing some nice venues and jazz festivals. And then I'm going to take the summer off. Oh, wow. Okay. Which is a new concept. <laughs> <laughs> what are you going to do? Are you going on vacation? No, uh, not really. But um, uh, we have a home in upstate New York. Okay. Right now I'm in Oregon. Right. I'm in I'm on, on, you know, southern Oregon. But we also have a house in upstate New York. And... Uh, and so we'll be there. It's a, just a beautiful area, and we really love being there. So we'll spend the summer there. We also have an apartment in New York City. So then come September and October, I'll be in, in New York, and I have uh, quite a few gigs uh, at Birdland. Oh, great. Doing you know, various things. It's listed on my website, vitalinformation.com. You're playing with Manuel again? Yeah, we're playing um, with like a Bud Powell yeah. tribute. With Manuel, I'm doing a, a Sonny Rollins tribute with Donnie McCaslin. Oh wow, that would be great. You know, so yeah, and that'll be trio with Lonnie Plaxico, just bass, sax, and drums, and and then uh, you know some other ones. I'm doing a drum camp uh, with Benny Greb. Oh wow, okay, amazing. In Germany, that during during September, this will will be pretty cool. So yeah, some some good things and uh, a few clinics. I've been asked to do a few clinics, and so that's in the process that of being worked out. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that happened, I think, you know, through COVID and 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 lockdown and not touring is I got I I enjoyed not touring all the time actually, sure. which was kind of a radical discovery <laughs> <laughs> because I'd been on tour nonstop for most of my career okay and so now i am uh taking less gigs and taking time off which feels pretty good good for you man good for you yeah excellent well steve it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you thank you so much you could have done anything with your morning and you chose to spend some of it here so i really appreciate it all right chris it's been a great experience talking with you yeah fun. Fun, good subjects to talk about. Excellent. Absolutely. If you find yourself in Glasgow at any point, please come say hello or let us know you're in town. We'll come out, catch up. Sounds good. Excellent. You take care, man. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Drummers Only Podcast. Please leave us a review and make sure you subscribe. If you need any more information about us or any gear mentioned, 
head on over to drummersonly.co.uk and make sure you follow us on all of our social channels at drummersonlyuk. Thanks for listening. Peace.